Hey, Emily, guess what I'm looking forward to? If I had to guess, I'd say your next meal. Well, true that. But even more than that, I'm looking forward to our annual Being Boss vacation in New Orleans. Same. We still have a handful of tickets left. So if you've been wanting to join us on our annual Being Boss vacation in New Orleans, consider this your sign to join us for a live podcast recording, masterclasses and workshops, and an epic boss celebration, and more with me, Kathleen, and your creative peers from all over the world. In the most magical city in the world, right? Yes. All right, the Being Boss Vacation is happening September 26th to the 28th in New Orleans. Go to beingboss.club slash NOLA for all the details. We hope to see you there. Hello and welcome to Being Boss, a podcast for creative entrepreneurs. I'm Emily Thompson. And I'm Kathleen Shannon. I'm Hannah Jewell and I'm doing my best to be boss. Even when I don't feel that all the time, I'm being a boss, okay? Today we're talking about women in history who did what they want with Hannah Jewell. As always, you can find all the tools, books, and links we reference on the show notes at www.beingboss.club. Hey there, bosses. We know you're getting a lot of stuff done. You're checking off those to-dos and wearing a lot of hats in your creative business. But just because you can do it all doesn't mean you should. Take accounting. You know it's an essential part of your business, but becoming a self-taught accountant is only going to distract you from what you really want to be doing all day. FreshBooks Cloud Accounting will allow you to save your time and energy on administrative tasks by making keeping track of your books ridiculously easy. FreshBooks keeps your money organized with easy-to-use features like invoicing, time tracking, creating estimates, tracking expenses, late payment reminders, project collaboration, online payments, and so much more. So whether your creative career is still a side hustle or you're fully supporting yourself with your entrepreneurial endeavors, FreshBooks makes being boss a whole lot easier. Get a free 30-day trial of FreshBooks right now. Go to freshbooks.com slash beingboss and enter being boss in the how did you hear about us section. Hannah Jewell is the pop culture host on the Washington Post's video team and the author of the new book, She Caused a Riot, a book about the awesome ladies that history forgot. Hannah, welcome to Being Boss. We are so excited to have you on the show because... I'm so excited to be here. Thank you. You wrote a book called She Caused a Riot, and we actually, your publisher sent us an advanced copy. We wrote a blurb like months ago. I finally got the print copy in the mail like just yesterday, and the back of it, I have to read this for our listeners. (laughs) There was not much... Okay, this is on the back cover. So you this book is beautiful. It's bright yellow with hot pink script. The typography is, I think, the same as the Being Boss logo. Um, It's so... I love it. And so on the back, it says, this is the only thing on the back cover. There's not a photo of you. There's no blurbs. Is this and a barcode. There was not much he could do when faced with so many well-organized vaginas seeking vengeance. What? <laughs> that's, that's such a 
that's not gonna make every woman I know buy that book I don't know what (laughs) that's such a thing I feel like I was so this is like my first book and I was so involved in making sure everything on the inside was as I wanted it to be and letting my wonderful publisher source books and their design team make it look like this and I remember picking the quote on the back was kind of like a like a last minute like sure put that on there and then and then realizing how like oh that's such actually a huge choice to have that there and I'm actually um here at the post a colleague of mine is is a colleague is is piloting a a kids show like a science kids show and and she was like oh like at the beginning of this episode I'll just be reading your book and then I'll come down and like and I'm like yeah awesome and then I'm like wait it's got like vaginas right there and like it is a science show but she was a little like okay we'll just show the front cover of that but (laughs) It was a way to be a little edgy on there without um, necessarily crossing any lines of uh, <laughs> decorum. I feel like this book is so is so wonderfully edgy, but I'm also mad that I have to say that it's edgy. Yeah, I know bit. what you mean. Yeah, like, <laughs> ooh, like women did science. Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. <laughs> but it's so fantastic. So we did get a copy of this book several months ago. We were reading it. This has been the book that I I read in the airport. Like, it's the book that while, while I'm waiting on a flight, I'll get it out on my iPad and I'll read a couple about a couple of women because the book is She Caused a Riot, 100 Unknown Women Who Built Cities, Sparked Revolutions, and Massively Crushed It. Massively. And so I'll open it and read about, you know, five, ten women while I'm waiting on on the airplane to show up or whatever it may be. And I will be laughing out loud, like super embarrassingly, <laughs> like sitting there with my like hats on, all like bundled up like a hermit, just laughing (laughs) at this hysterical, amazing, illuminating book that you have written and should have been written and shared with everyone a hundred years ago, 500 years ago, but here it is now. (laughs) And I think it's spectacular. Thank you so much. I hope when you're laughing at it, you then hold it up and turn your iPod around and you're like, everybody available at all bookshops. (laughs) I'm like... like, I I will begin doing that for sure. I will also say since it has come out so the Being Boss book actually came out about the same time yours did. Yeah, so I've congratulations been spending, on yours. Thank you very much. But I've been spending some extra time around bookstores, like scanning mm-hmm. the shelves, you know, yeah. just making sure <laughs> yours is in a lot more places than ours is. Oh, it's everywhere. Man. I see it everywhere I go, and I love seeing it. I, I shout out to my my marketing team slash publicist and their their hustle for putting it. I think uh, it being Women's History Month, it came out in Women's History Month in March, and it it's that got like Barnes and Noble to put it places but I definitely go in I went in a bookstore here in DC called Politics and Prose the other day and I like didn't immediately see it it wasn't with history and it wasn't on like a shelf it normally was so I was a little like sad and about to leave and then my friend was like don't be ridiculous my like really like ballsy girlfriend and she was like oh like she goes up and she's like excuse me do you have this book and he's like oh yes they do and they like she brought me over to and we found it and I'm like oh I'm so glad it's here and like it's a weird new thing to be sensitive about which now you understand as well and it's it's ridiculous because you think of like getting a book out being a lifelong goal and then and then getting it done and then there's this whole new set of like insecurities and doubts that you can now experience for sure. a new but anyway for sure well tell us a little bit about yourself what are you doing now and how did you get here and especially here being writing this book okay yeah it's such a strange path I think I've taken I mean it's not that strange but it's not like I you know I didn't wrestle any bears to get to my current career but um I am currently a on-camera journalist for the Washington Post's video team 
uh, we have a kind of new, we have a big video team here, but um, who are all swirling around me right now. But uh, we have a new section of that video team called creative video. And this is where there are some sort of satire video writers and producers, as well as on camera journalists in, for instance, science and politics. And I'm the pop culture on camera host. So I got to, for instance, go to the Oscars, and instead of in the past, the post might have had just a camera sitting there. In fact, I don't think we did have a video feed ever on the Oscars red carpet. Um, instead, they're like, sent me, and I, me and my colleague Dave, who is also an on-camera guy, behind-camera guy, does everything guy, uh, were just squeezed into 18 inches of space on the Oscars red carpet while I like desperately screamed for celebrities to come and talk to us. And we just had like a, a live feed on it for like a an hour, I forget how long, an hour and a half maybe. And it's, it's a very strange experience just filling space. And we had, it had like a half a million views. It did pretty well. And so um, I do things like that, live things I make. I appear in like more silly, scripted, satirical things um, and do some like generic interviews, not generic interviews, great interviews uh, with sort of people in entertainment. And before that, I my job before this was at BuzzFeed UK in the London office because um, I am both British and American. I was born in London, grew up in California, and then kind of wasn't doing a lot after college. I had studied Middle East studies as my undergrad degree, and then I was kind of for two years in San Francisco just living with my friends, playing a lot of pool, um, doing a number of part-time jobs as a research assistant for a professor doing weird like extra work in any movie that was a that was shooting in the Bay Area, working with a bunch of kids at an um, Arab cultural and community center who were recently arrived immigrants, um, and, and writing a weird marketing blog that I didn't care about and didn't have my name on it. Um, but they paid me $18 per post. Uh, and after a couple of years, I'm like, I'm not, like none of this is adding up to anything. So then I decided to try and go to grad school, um, still in the same area as my undergrad, I decided to go and do uh, international relations and politics masters. I applied for Cambridge because I have family there. My favorite, craziest uncle lives there. And um, I was very interested in having that experience of like the British elite in this world that I was sort of had never seen into and, and was interested in that and in studying, learning more. And right after that, I got hired as a um, an editorial fellow, which was like a glorified intern at BuzzFeed. And while I was there, I did just everything. I did the sort of basic quizzes that I'm sure you have taken <laughs> um, and lists and everything. I also did a small amount of reporting. And I my main favorite thing to do there was making fun of both British and American politics for like a transatlantic audience, explaining ridiculous things that happened in British politics to Americans and vice versa. 2016 was a good year for that with, with Brexit, with the 2016 election. Um, yeah, and then I got this book deal based on a um, uh, my literary agent in London. His son had seen a post I did for BuzzFeed called um, how, uh, how to Tell Apart All the White Men in Theresa May's Cabinet because she had released a cabinet photo <laughs> with all these like men just like all just like looking like slightly red in the face and, and, you know, looking important and looking, uh, looking rich. And I just thought this is an easy punching up situation, comedically speaking. And so I, I just like had a short humorous instruction of how to identify this person in a lineup. Um, and yeah. And, and I met my, this agent emailed me saying, do you have any book ideas? Um, 
I was like, oh, yes, I have many, thinking he would be like, cool, let's meet in a couple weeks. And he was like, great, meet me tomorrow morning at this fancy private members club in London. And I was like, shit. <laughs> I, I went and um, I don't know if this is a swearing podcast, but now it, it is. is. Please do. <laughs> yeah, big old red E next to our <laughs> logo. Perfect. <laughs> um, yeah, so I, I just, this was the idea I had had. Um, it really was the, an idea I had toyed with. I had written about women in history. Speaking of swearing, my, my first article I did about women in history for BuzzFeed was called 12 Historical Women Who Gave No Fucks. And um, I went and I was like, how about a book length version of that? He was like, sounds good. That's, and I was like, I have other ideas. He's like, nope, that's the one. <laughs> and so I, I had just always had such a huge response whenever I wrote about women in history in the language of the internet and of millennials and of millennial women. And there was obviously a lot of interest in that and a lot of relief and people enjoying writing uh, or learning in a way that was not, you know, like overly somber, overly self-important. And my ability, my writing to just not take myself too seriously either, I think makes it a more, more of a mass appeal, more, uh, I just don't want to like feel like you're being punished while reading this. Um, So yeah, I wrote this book in pretty much a summer between, um, leaving BuzzFeed when I heard from uh, my now boss um, on my my team at The Post who reached out to me based on work I'd done there, seeing if I'd want to come join her here. And I was like, cool, just give me a couple months to write a book. <laughs> and then I just had this crazy summer last year um, okay, cranking this out. Yeah. So obviously you're funny. You work Thank for you. BuzzFeed. <laughs> I mean, this is probably time, I'm imagining who you are, but I'm curious about the pol- like the, the political mm-hmm. aspect of your career, the Cambridge, the elite. How did you maintain that sense of humor through all of that stuff? Um, or did you like try and did you even, like in like, spite of it? Yeah, yeah no, I know what you mean. Or like, how did you keep from letting, you know, probably the people that you're surrounded by or how did you maintain, how did you <laughs> nurture that or cultivate it or at least not even like dampen it down or did you dampen it down depending on those situations? I think I do have a hard time being serious a lot of the time. And I got that from my mom. She's just never been a serious person. And uh, I think that I was surrounded by like, especially at Cambridge, a bunch of people from all over the world, young people who uh, were learning basically and training to be diplomats for their countries and, and, going into the most serious types of careers. And, and and I remember while being there, while being very academically interested in what we were studying and I did international law and it was such an amazing, just like mental exercise learning from this top international lawyer called uh, Mark Weller, who's ne- constantly had to like leave to go negotiate treaties around the world. And, and me loving, I loved learning about that, but I was also just like, oh, I'm just not as, like, professional as everyone around me. I don't have, like, I'm, like, just late to everything, which continues to be a problem, barely able to put on clothes. And I was around these people who were, like, also, like, wonderfully funny, warm, great people, but who just, like, were professional people. And while I was at Cambridge, even though I was putting in this work and studying what I was studying, I was also interested in going there because Cambridge has a very famous comedy scene um, from which all of the great British comedians, not all of them, but many come through uh, a group called the Footlights. Um, And while I was there, I did uh, every Tuesday night at 11 p.m. 
the Footlights do a show called A Smoker where everyone gets like three minutes to do a sketch or stand up. And I was like, I have to do, I have to try this. And they do, the first one they do each year is the Virgin Smoker. So anyone who's never done one before. So I was like, okay, my, my New Year's resolution for, I think, 2013 was to do three minutes of stand up. <laughs> and I was like, I've got all year to do it and I have to do it. And it got to be October and there was this opportunity. So I went and did the stand up and I was just like, this feels amazing. And it's not, I like stand up is not the world in which I'm usually being comedic, but I definitely see that I spent my time at Cambridge learning how to make memes about our professors, like doing the kind of like writing a column that was like a funny column about feminism. And even though my degree was in international relations, I, I, I took advantage of my time there. Um, and then as you have in any university setting, meeting the people and building skills for the thing that I was slowly realizing, I was like, actually, I just want to be a silly person. And at the end of my master's, I was applying for two jobs at once. I was applying to be someone's assistant at the Council on Foreign Relations, a think tank here in D.C., and I was applying to be a BuzzFeed intern. And I remember just being like, what am I supposed to do with my social media presence right now? And so <laughs> to, while applying for two jobs and I was trying to make like slightly witty jokes about international relations with my life. <laughs> and uh, you had to do test posts applying for BuzzFeed. And one that I did was ranking the judges of the International Court of Justice by sexiness. Because I was like, this is a, which I did in the library in Cambridge one day and people were studying. And because I had, was learning about, you know, international law and I was just like, look at these, like, I don't even remember how many justices there are, but like either nine or 11 or something, just, you know, serious people and just poking fun of the, at them. And like in a kind of positive way, ended up being like the, the type of humor that got me this, this gig at BuzzFeed, which sort of led to everything else. So yeah, I think that I, I it was sort of like a realization that was not a sad realization. And it's like, oh, like I, you know, if I had to be awake really early every day or if I just, you know, if I couldn't crack jokes in, in diplomatic settings, like it's that that being OK and just staying me. But then I also wonder if you could have like I could imagine you uh, having that job and then oh, yeah. still being funny. <laughs> I wonder what that would have been like the inverse of what you're doing now. Yeah. Like what it would have been like in the parallel world. But it, anyway, it's let's totally possible. Going. If I got that other job, it's totally possible. And Or you've been fired knows? real fast. Or you've been fired <laughs> real fast. And I've been like, that's fair. That's fair. So... <laughs> All right, I want to talk about writing this book. Uh, I would love to hear a little bit about the process of writing it because I imagine with 100 women from history in this book, a lot of research went into it. And mm-hmm. because it was you know, written, obviously, in a very new and different voice than probably any of these women have ever, or any woman maybe, has ever been written about, um, there was a lot of like synthesizing that information into yeah. like how it is you wanted to tell those stories. So tell me a little bit about that process. Oh man, yeah, it was it was a lot of research, and there was uh, more time. I, I think researching each woman than actually writing about each woman. And I I because I I learned how to I just built the muscles required to be able to write them really quickly for researching. There's definitely very different levels of research throughout the book, and you can kind of tell when you're reading. You're like, oh, I found like one short article about this woman being the only thing that's been written about her. And writing about that versus like, oh, I read like the biographies and I'm like so invested. And and the way that I synthesized was to 
hand write my research notes because I felt like if I was going to just type, if I was going to be copy pasting from articles for quotes and things and it was going to go overboard. So by handwriting in notebooks, I could only, I limited myself to like a few pages of the key points that I wanted to hit with references to wherever I wanted to pull quotes from or whatever I was doing. Um, and I just would go into the British Library in London uh, and you're only allowed, to, you're not allowed to take pens in there and you can order a bunch of books of the women I was reading about that day, um, pencil my notes in my little notebook and then go home and I'm definitely a, like a creepy night writer and after everyone's gone to bed and then like I was me and the, the cat in the house that I was staying in at the time would just stay up while I would look at my notes, think like what is the, what is the like essence of what was impressive about this woman or, or what, what was the, the anecdote from their life that I think is surprising and unexpected for a woman of her time or a woman of today's time today's time um and yeah that it was a lot and it was a very fearful process of like what if there is uh, there's a lot of stress about historiography and about the debates within history about about the same things and knowing um and my boyfriend's a historian professionally and his friends who have become my friends over the last five something years are people who study a specific thing incredibly deeply. And I was there trying to do the opposite of that, of doing the whole world and all of time <laughs> in a shallow manner. Um, <laughs> and having to, I really benefited from being able to reach out to them and, and, and bless them. And they're all in my acknowledgements and my acknowledgements are very long because I got so much help from people where I was like, here, I've written about a few women in the part of the world where the time that you study, can you a very serious intelligent genius academic person read this and just make sure that I haven't missed the point make sure that I haven't fallen in any t into any traps like some like someone who who checked my section on um on a um Mexican nun uh who's amazing Sor Juana if you've got to her chapter yet um I he was like oh you know there's a lot of a debate in the people who write about this time and place about not overly romanticizing the Aztec empire because I think I had made a sort of throwaway comment about how advanced and wondrous this civilization was in a way that was like true but also is sort of an old way of writing about something so all these little traps that are everywhere that I was just desperately like emailing people to make sure that I was avoiding these things not interpreting things in the wrong way simplifying things in ways that that were too simplifying, even when I'm trying to write something that's between 500 and 2000 words per woman. And then, and then, and then coming to terms with the fact that I, it couldn't be perfect and this could never be perfect. I could never hit every single point or, or, and I just knew going into this, there's going to be, it's going to be something wrong in this and I'm just going to have to deal with that and, and learning to love my book as an imperfect thing. Um, which is to say I've only had like one like footnote that I now I'm going to delete and reprint. So that's been the only like issue. Um, <laughs> but uh, so, yeah, it, it was it was the research was like crazy and sometimes very stressful, but just the sheer amount of what I had to do in a short amount of time, but also made it easy to write to have so much material to draw from for for most of the women or a very little amount of information to draw from. And then having to fill in the blanks with like dumb jokes. So 
which you can tell when you're going through the chapters when it's like, okay, I didn't have a lot of information here. Sometimes I would address that and be like, there's not a lot known. There's debate about this. So let's just tell a story based on this assumption or that assumption. So I'd like to know then, after going through all of that research and handwriting all of those notes and all of those things, why this book? Why was this the book that you wanted to write? And why a hundred unknown women presented with great humor? I had always seen when I'd written about women in history, how joyfully people reacted to learning about new women in history, as I felt in myself whenever I have just out in the world heard about a woman I've never heard of, whether be it in a in a random tweet or in a weird Wikipedia spiral at night. And just knowing that there's a there's so much satisfaction that I as a young woman got from learning about women who had overcome incredible odds to do amazing things and to do so without caring what people thought and just feeling there's so much inspiration to be taken from women like that. So I wanted to have this book and and I wanted it to be an inspirational thing. And that's sort of probably a cliche thing, but, but I know that's what a lot of the reaction has been to it. Um, and with a political message inherent in it that all of these women were defying defying norms of their day that are often unresolved to this day um, and wanting to build a body of evidence that the women have not just only just started to be revolutionary and brilliant in their field and the first to do this and the first to do that. I think that uh, if you realize, oh, women have always been there and women have always been incredible in so many different ways, uh, in whichever way most relates to what you want to do in the world, then it just feels like, oh, you realize that the problem is one of of the historical record and of the way that has been shaped by millennia of patriarchy and not about the problem isn't women themselves. The problem isn't that women have only just been like, ooh, now I'm going to be scrappy and I'm going to lean in. Um, I think that, um, <laughs> um, not that I don't, I, I definitely yell lean in in this book a lot in all caps. Um, Usually when a woman has just, you know, murdered someone to gain power. <laughs> like, Lean in and prison. Which is within that, I, like, other than it being a fun thing to, to write. Um, I also, in the times I reference Lean in this book, is always to um, also critique the way that there's just so much pressure on women to be the, like, to, well, you can do anything with the right attitude and it's just like sometimes I just don't want to have the right attitude I just want people around me to be less terrible um and and that being Amen. like um yeah I don't know so um yeah I wanted it to be accessible and I I wanted it to be fun so that people actually would read it and then my wondrous publisher also made it look very pretty and that makes it a lot easier to read when there's a beautiful pastel pink or green or something on each page and I had no idea that it was going to look like this and they sent me the proofs and I just was going through this pdf like holy shit look how beautiful it is and showing it to people so um yeah I want to secretly galvanize people in a political sense and I think people sometimes celebrate women's history as if it were apolitical um, but the women I chose in this book are not people like Margaret Thatcher who appears in so many of these books who's policies were just unquestionably bad for women. Um, I wanted to hold my women to a higher standard. It isn't just a question of like, I'm a woman who succeeded against all odds. 
except for the ancient women who could just kill freely, and that was good enough for me. I was about to say, there were <laughs> who killed children and Oh, yeah, they did. And... It was a different time. Um, <laughs> I, I definitely, the more, the more modern, the, the point, so I have this section called Women with Impressive Kill Counts that, that I sometimes get asked about, um, and part of that, the purpose of that section really is just to undo assumptions about women being docile, women being unable or unwilling to take power and being too soft and maternal and this and that. And the fact that, um, yeah, these are the women who, who would have, you know, worn the equivalent of 80s power suits in their like day. They were, they were showing up and playing the game. Yeah. Right <laughs> along with their male counterparts. Um, and it's just a thing that what is funny about this section is, is, is that it is unexpected and that we celebrate and have statues commemorating men who are, as murderous, if not far more murderous than these women. So, um, yeah, people really can take exception to that section. But um, I had a cutoff of the Russian Revolution of the last time a woman was able to kill another woman and be in my book in a way that is considered funny and harmless. Um, uh, So, yeah, I have a woman who assassinates a czar. Um, And after that, they're all, I think, blood free. That's like a, a thing I should know. Maybe not. Easter That's Rising, Constance Markovitz definitely shot at some policemen, but it was un- unclear if the bullets hit. But anyway, um, <laughs> yeah. So I love that you say that you held your women to this standard. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious to hear, like, did you have to whittle it down to 100? Were you grasping for 100? And then whenever it comes to the 100, have you noticed any patterns or themes of, like, what they all have in common? Mm-hmm. I think I was both whittling down and adding as I went along, adding women when I found when woman, one woman's story led to another's that I wasn't aware of before, um, adding just by virtue of reading so much and just coming across new names, um, excuse me, um, and then whittling down when I found out that a woman, for instance, was a eugenicist or like wrote a love letter to Hitler and a lot of early social workers it turns out and women who on the surface of it you sort of read about and you're like, wow, this woman made a birth control clinic in like the 20s and 30s and how amazing. And then you look into it further and you're like, oh, they did that because they thought like poor women shouldn't be allowed to have children and then believed in, in a master race and wrote a love letter to Hitler. And so things like that, I was whittling down. Um, if someone, yeah, and, and adding and subtracting and then selling on my hundred when I was just like, there needs to be a line drawn at a certain point and I need to be <laughs> done. Um, um, or just sort of running out of, of just not having the sources that I wanted to be able to do that, um, to be able to write about a woman confidently. Um, what was the other part of your, oh, what they have in common. Mm-hmm. Um, I think what they have in common is that they were all principled in some way or another or ambitious and this this sounds like overly simplistic, but they did what they wanted to do um, in the sense that they they were they were just doing what they were passionate about and and not doing what was expected of them. And that sounds really like basic and cliche, but it was something that 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 struck me so much while going through that if a woman wasn't you know meant to be a pianist but like loved playing the fucking piano and so just did or women who were interested in in astronomy these um a lot of astronomers in here a lot i mean too um 
and were doing it because they they loved their work. And so that was a, a thing that I took away was um, that although the, the title is She Caused a Riot, but that doesn't mean that they were all literally like causing riots in the streets, though some were. Some women were considered to be causing riots by having an opinion that they expressed, you know, in small ways, um, just doing the smallest things that might feel perfectly normal and acceptable, but were shocking in their day to to the powers that be around them. So, yeah, I think they also, many of them had networks of women that they were within or benefiting from, be it other women in their field, other activists, other suffragists, other abolitionists that they were consorting with. And um, for instance, Ida B. Wells is in here. She's one of the better known women in my book. She had a huge network of abolitionist suffragists who were African-Americans and who supported her publication. They basically held a big fundraising gala to uh, publish her her book on, on lynching, which was a huge work that defined the way that we study and think about lynching to this day. Um, this was in the 1890s and she had all sorts of women, in fact, uh, some who appear elsewhere in the book who, who turned out for this big fundraising event for her. Um, yeah. And with the scientists with, um, and, and with writers writing to each other with like talking to other women, whenever women start talking to other women, you know, things happen. Um, (laughs) and so that was a thing I, I absolutely, uh, was noticing throughout. And of course, what they all have in common was men being threatened by their power and women being threatened by their power and whoever was really invested in the norms of their day being unhappy about what they were doing, be it like doing math or fomenting a revolution um, with equal panic towards each type of activity. This Being Boss episode is brought to you by 2020, where creative minds get authentic real-world stock photos. Are you tired of coming across stock photos that misrepresent women's identity and truly lack in diversity when looking for new content for your creative projects? 2020 lets you buy millions of authentic real-world photos proven to increase the brand image of your business. And they have a very notorious Real Women photo collection. Today, they're offering listeners of Being Boss a five-photo-free trial. To start yours right now, go to 2020.com slash beingboss. That's the word 20, then 20.com slash beingboss to get five free photos. I'm curious to hear, Hannah, is there anyone in this book that especially inspired you? Like if you have a patron saint of this book or, you know, like one story that you really want to highlight that our listeners should hear about as well, what would that be? Or who would that yeah. be, rather? I think I, I usually get asked who my favorite woman is in the book, and I can never really decide because I, I love them all equally. All my mothers, my hundred mothers. Um, <laughs> and there's some stories that I just love because they're so preposterous. Uh, but someone asked me just, you know, like a after a book event I did in a bar, somebody I didn't know that well was like, who do you have the most spiritual connection with? I'm like, oh my God, I don't know. And so, and then I, I think a story that I- Which one were you in a past life? <laughs> in a past life. <laughs> oh man, that's such, it's just all, it's so hard because I really, I, I really carefully thought about who I wanted in each one. I think the women I admire the most are the women in my section, which is um, women who punch Nazis. 
metaphorically, but also not. And the women I chose in this section were women who really could have easily not done anything during World War II and really could have easily stood by as genocide occurred, but instead risked their lives and often died because they were so aware of injustices that were not directed against them personally. But um, that sort of courage, I think, is the part of the book where I'm like, okay, I, need, I will be serious here, obviously. And, um, and I think about them all the time. But for really women who I just like, if I could go and meet, maybe as a way of thinking about it, is Gladys Bentley, who, I mean, I mentioned piano playing earlier, but she was a musician in, in the Harlem Renaissance. And in the 20s and 30s in New York was a drag king who, um, I have a quote I can read you. This is like a, a quote I keep thinking about um, because she was basically like the piano player to so many of the great musicians who came out of that period. And the poet Langston Hughes described how she performed. Um, and he said she could play the piano all night long, literally all night without stopping from 10 in the evening until dawn with scarcely a break between the notes sliding from one song to another. And I just like the abandon of that is something that just I would love, like, I would have loved to be there and see people just doing their craft and what they're passionate about. And she would wear these like white tuxedos. She broke all the rules of what was expected of a woman in her time. And, um, and I like my mom's a piano teacher, too. And so I have never quite learned to play with total abandon. But I because she's like a classical musician, and I and I'm worse at jazz because I'm like, but there's nothing set out. But every now and then when you get into a certain flow and it's just the best feeling in the world. So I think she would like do these ridiculous, like naughty word play that she would just tell preposterous stories that were like sexual and, and, and like, which actually kind of like seem like tame by today's standard. I was like, wow, she sounds raunchy. Her, her, the police would shut down the club she performed in because of, the immorality of what was happening there. But then I read what that was and it was like, she mentioned masturbation and everyone's like, Oh, it's the twenties. Um, <laughs> and what, what's sad about her story is that as time went on um, in the fifties in the era of McCarthyism and the, the, you know, anti-gay hysteria of the fifties. Um, and she was a lesbian. She, she kind of retreated from her persona she was always nostalgic for the way that she used to have this amazing menswear style. She may or may not have married a man, having may or may not have married a woman before, uh, not in a legal sense, but having had a ceremony. And she kind of then disavowed her previous life of amazing white tuxedo top hat jazz life. <laughs> um but she always apparently, this is one where her story's a little murkier towards the end, had kept a picture of the woman who she may or may not have married in her house for the rest of her life. But that was a story where you realize that we don't, it's easy to assume, oh, things just get more progressive, open-minded, tolerant as time goes on. But that's really not a guarantee. And that that change only happens if there is active fighting against it and societies can become more regressive as easily as they can come become more progressive. Um, and that was also a big fascination in my, in my Nazis chapter. Um, 
how you do know, these societies fall to fascism? Of, yeah. I feel like, speaking, speaking of, of punching Nazis in the face <laughs> and people freaking out about, you know, progression, um, did that really give you some context or inspiration toward what's happening now? Did it give you, I mean, in some ways I would think like, okay, this has always been a thing, mm-hmm. you know, like it was never great. It was never perfect. It was mm-hmm. It's also getting better, but also maybe not. Like if you read, what kind of context did it give you for today? I definitely am very fascinated by who does or does not resist bad things happening. And, but more so than that, who finds ways to separate themselves from bad things. Uh, there's a one of the women who's in my book because of this essay of hers. Uh, Dorothy Thompson was a journalist um, who used to broadcast basically American propaganda radio shows into Nazi Germany, and she was really despised by the Nazis because of this. And she wrote an essay called um, I think the essay is called "Who Goes Nazi," and it's about her being at a dinner party and looking at a, around a room and in America in the thirties and imagining who would or wouldn't, if the U S were overrun with fascism, if it were, if it came down to it, if they were the way that France had been invaded, if that, if Americans had to make those sorts of decisions, how do you know who and who wouldn't, who wouldn't, wouldn't go Nazi. And she goes through and it's, it's about the, how ways in which it's not as obvious as you might think. And everyone likes to think I would never have, you know, if I were there, I would have done this or that. And, um, yeah. So I, uh, what was the original question? Now I'm just thinking about Dorothy Thompson and who goes, no, (laughs) I I love that you're going down that train of thought. It was just like, what did, did studying any of these women give you some context for what's happening today? Okay. Yeah. So you were there. Yeah, I think pretty simply, yes, it has, especially because people are there, you know, there's always the, the, the rule in which people bring up Hitler at any given moment (laughs) or, or fascism and and accusations of fascism being thrown around. So I was really interested in like, what can we learn about? What is the, the cultural context, the sort of your average person, as opposed to political leaders who would just sell out to wherever and, you know, those leaders who pretended to be great opponents of Trump and then were immediately turning up at his his overcooked steak dinners begging to be part of his cabinet I won't name names um not so much that but at a more um generic level of of just your average person and the way that things become normalized the way that the small slow steps of how societies can change over time and I think it's a thing that people are really aware of and are teaching themselves about right now the ways that this has happened in in the past and there's always something to be learned from the past about the present um in any of these eras and uh yeah it's a, it's a thing I think about a lot well and I would even talk about how this may have affected you personally like I can only imagine that diving into the lives and histories of all of these like amazing women probably shifted the way you think about the world and maybe even move through it a little bit and I think more pointedly has it helped you give less fucks <laughs> yes I think it has I think I think it's been a it's changed there were definitely I mean all all of the women in this book die in the end there's no living women in this book and I actually included 
the circumstances of their death a lot of the time in a way that I didn't even realize I was making a choice because I think a lot of books like this, you're like, they did this and then they reached their career peak when really there's a lot to learn about the ends of their lives and if they ended up being ostracized or, or whatever. So there, it was, there's a lot of sadness in this book and I, because I, as I said, I write in the depths of the night. <laughs> there was sort of like sadly like crying on a cat with my laptop being like no one understood her but um I think that the in terms of giving fucks I think that uh the process of becoming confident enough to put a book into the world was my version of learning how to do that both being inspired by these women's stories but also being just knowing that you know if if things don't go well if something's not perfect just like nobody dies Unlike some of these women's work or their activism, their revolutionary fervor often led them to be, them to being killed. And just like the the comfort that comes from like, I mean, you never know. I'm going to jinx it now. Knock on wood. But like <laughs> if I fuck up at my job, like nobody dies. So um, unless I really like put the worst video in the world that somehow kills someone, um, that is a nice uh comfort to to hold on to and I think that I am a more chill person with that understanding that um with a huge task like writing a a book that is a hundred thousand words long knowing like I'm gonna get it done and just not to stress about it too much and as a very like stressy you know in high school I was just like if I don't get this score on this test like my life is ruined forever and I think I've just sort of grown up enough to be like it'll be fine. I just have to be me and trust in myself and I probably won't kill anyone in the process. And that is such a blessing <laughs> until I do. So I have a question about like the, the unknown aspect of these women. So you're highlighting a lot of women that many of us have never heard of. And our listeners are mostly creative entrepreneurs or aspiring creatives And I think that in this day and age with Instagram and reality TV, I feel like this need for like recognition and attention and all the likes goes hand Mm -hmm. in hand with the idea of success um, whenever it comes to doing the work. So I'm curious to hear your perspective on doing the work and doing great things, even if at the end, at the end of your death, nobody really kind of knows who you are. Yeah. Oh, man. We're all going to die alone. Uh, no, We're all going okay. to die. This <laughs> is my fine. mantra. Um, the thing where, was it Bridge to Terabithia where you're supposed to learn? No, 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 no. What's the book where you just, they drink from the well and live forever and that turns out to be a bad thing? I'm mixing up my, like, middle school oh, books. What is they made a movie. Tuck Everlasting. About. Tuck Everlasting. Yes. Yep. So living forever is bad. That's what I learned from that. Um, but anyway... Um, I think that, um, a thing that I learned, not even as much from like the women in this book, but I learned so much after being an intern at BuzzFeed, I was then the person who hired and trained the new generations of interns. And when I was doing that, when I was hiring at BuzzFeed, I realized that the most important thing someone could do and show you in their resume was that they were already doing the thing that they were telling you they wanted to do um and women even if they just had like like I have a beauty blog or like I review random like chicken restaurants around London because I was I was hiring there uh and seeing that like they actually 
enjoy and love the thing they do enough that they're just found a way to do it. And because it is 2018 and we can make videos on our phones, we can write and post it in places that can be seen anywhere. Anyone who just had a blog that they wrote in regularly, you knew that they weren't bullshitting about wanting to be a writer. And that's the thing that I think I have sometimes you know, fallen in the trap of being like, well, why would I write a thing if like no one's going to see it? I'm just going to put it here. But um, usually I've, I've found without even like ever setting out to become a writer or an author, I was just always kind of doing it without thinking about it as something that was adding up to anything. But it does add up. And I think that uh, the women in this book were interested not in being a famous woman of history or someone who would be, you know, forgotten unfairly. No one was like, well, that's not true. Some were interested in becoming legends, for which they were very judged. There is a um, pilot, Jean Batten, who was a New Zealand pilot who moved to London. Her and her mom's goal were for her to become world famous. And she got a lot of shit for that. People were like, she's so vain. She used to always wear great lipstick when she would arrive places. Um, and so people suspected her motives in a way that like most great, quote-unquote, great men of history also imagined that they would become legends and go down in history so women should that should hear be a that, goal hear that haters yeah hear Whenever that you're leaving us <laughs> shit comments <laughs> it's it's just yeah it's, it's not working but i think the most important the thing for like most of these women was that they were doing something because they loved to do it like gladys and piano or the activists in this book or the writers in this book and the scientists in this book or the um, ancient murderesses of this book who just brazenly wanted power and uh, were willing to do whatever it took to, to get it. Um, they were interested in, in doing something as opposed to being something. So there really isn't a way to, you can't promise anyone they're going to get the recognition they deserve. But um, I think the best chance you have of getting the recognition you deserve is is that you're just doing the work and you're just, um, I, I knew a, you know, a, a, a person who, was an intern who was really just really wanted to be like a great cultural writer and who who really just had a vision of themselves I'm avoiding gender anyway to identify this person but just a, a friend of mine told this person you just need to actually you need to spend less time imagining what you can become in a world famous this or that and a widely respected this or that and just do the work and just start a blog and just write every day or whatever the creative thing they're interested in doing is. Amen. Hey, I want to connect a dot really quick, because I don't know mm -hmm. if you've noticed this. Whenever we asked you, like, who you would want to hang with, and you said yeah. Gladys, and you yeah. said how she just, like, played the piano into the night, <laughs> you literally made the same motions for writing this book into the I night. I did, yeah, I know. So, like, That's just true. in case you didn't connect person. that. I did not, no. So there you go. It's she more had, fun to play the piano Gladys into the in night. a past life. <laughs> Hooray! Um, man, I just want to. Maybe I should just go to more jazz gigs. This is actually what I'm learning about myself right now. This is the thing that I'm, I used to do this all the time, and when I lived in San Francisco. But okay, I'm gonna make it more. Apparently, this is very important to me. <laughs> but it is fun. There's like a fun craziness. I mean, it, like a lot of the time, so painful trying to eke out a word count, and and just feels like you're pulling teeth with every single sentence. But there's also the times where you're like, look at me go. <laughs> like, I'm like, this is so funny and laughing at my own jokes. And those moments are wonderful. 
I think the feeling that I most want to cultivate from this conversation is this idea of creating with abandon, like just really getting into that flow and enjoying the process so much. And like, even if it's not literally the most dreamiest thing you've ever done, like just letting yourself do the thing without worrying or overthinking or any of those things. I feel like, and especially our listeners, because, you know, they sell their creativity for a living. There's a lot riding on that creation. Mm-hmm. Um, there can be a lot of weight that's put on it. And that abandon is tam- dampered. I guess dampered is the word. D- dampened. Um, dampened. Thank you. Or, I so, feel like there is another word, like tampered. tampered? Tempered? Tempered. Tampered. You know what? If that's not a word, you can just edit this part out. Right? <laughs> or just keep it, guys. This is Emily this trying is the to abandon. figure out the English language. Yeah. <laughs> like... This is a real ongoing struggle. Podcast with um, abandon. Don't let anyone keep you down. <laughs> right? So abandon is definitely one of the things that I want to try to cultivate more of in my life, for sure. Because so many of these women, it was, it was abandon, for mm. sure. And, I, and, and being, not trying too hard to be someone else and fit someone else's expectations. A thing that I really loved when I, I just, so I just started at the Post in um, last August, and when I started the the managing editor, one of the managing editors here, Tracy Grant, who's a wondrous woman, sits everyone who's new down and says, look, a mistake that a lot of people make when they start here is thinking that I have been hired by the Washington Post and now I have to become a Washington Post reporter or salesperson or advertising person or whatever the role is and comes and like, you know, wears something a little more, you know, put together than they, they normally would or, or speaks in a different way. And when really she's like, the reason we've hired you all is to bring what you have here. Um, and I was so into that. I was like, even if that's just nice, a nice thing to say, <laughs> like, <laughs> I, I love that. And it helps you. I think I was sort of looking around and at my, I have an amazing colleague, Libby Casey, who is our, our on air uh, politics host. And she's been a broadcaster for years and she's just like such a professional. She's such a pro. She knows what she's doing. She knows how to like everything from like putting on like camera makeup within like eight seconds somehow. And then she, is so clear and is the best and I've, I was like oh my god I need to be her I need to like mimic her voice and her everything and and then being like well out of love for her and as tribute to her and then I'm like that's that's not me like I I can't I I can pretend to be a little more serious but I've but not that serious and so yeah being being yourself is again a thing that they put on the wall in a poster in preschool but no one I don't think I really knew what that meant until quite recently I think so I know I feel like the older I get the more the cliches are really ringing so true and I'm like oh that's why everyone <laughs> says that it is it is I get that there is something about like feeling it in your gut well Hannah thank you so much for joining us where can people find the book oh man you can find it at Barnes and Noble you can find it on Amazon you can find it in independent bookstores um, if it's not there in your local bookstore go and ask for them to have it there. I'm actually about to move house to a neighborhood where the indie bookstore doesn't have my book. And I'm like, I can't live here, but I'm going to go in and be like, if you stop my book, I'll buy it. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. Online. You can find me on Twitter and there's links there at HC jewel, J E W E L L. Um, which is where I do most of my whining on a day to day basis. So yeah. Awesome. And what makes you feel most boss? I'm in such a non-boss phase and not in a bad way. I think the moment that you feel a little too like, I'm the boss of this place, I own everyone here, 
it's probably a good sign that you should make a like move to a bigger pond <laughs> or just and so right now moving I moved country I moved to a new job in a huge intimidating newsroom I'm like most of the time just be like I'm not a boss right now I'm just learning from everyone and like that's fine and I, I'm making a switch from writing to video I'm just learning and absorbing and kind of being a little more more timid but I think that I've I've just been here long enough that I'm starting to feel like yeah I nailed that interview or like yeah fuck you I nailed that and and I think that thing that makes me feel boss and I don't know if it's the bad thing or not is um being a little underestimated by someone and then and then kind of seeing how their perception of you changes once you have performed your job really well. Um, and I had this with an interview recently where I interviewed a screenwriter of a movie that I just thought was like pretty racist. The movie is Beirut. Um, I used to live in Lebanon and, and for a while and, and I just thought this movie was full of cliches and I had the chance to sit down with the screenwriter and the, in seeing the way his body language shift shifted throughout like a 20 minute interview from being like, I'm a hotshot, like, like millionaire, like hugely respected in Hollywood, or, or at least just like very prominent in Hollywood. Um, and I'm just like, hi, like, <laughs> I'm a little girl. Um, and then starting to question him about his choices in making this movie, which is a movie which is set in Lebanon in the Civil War, but doesn't have any Lebanese actors in it and has a lot of stereotypes about Arabs and is, is I, I just sort of like lent into his discomfort a little and let there be si- silences. And after that, and like, he was pissed out. Like he was very nice to me after, but the, the PR called and was like, we expected a much lighter interview. And I'm like, well, wh- like why you why made a movie you about the, the yeah. <laughs> and I, and I get it. Cause it's like, I do all kinds of work and many, much of it is very light, but, but I came out of that being a sense of like, this guy hasn't been questioned in this way face to face before he's being criticized for this movie, but he's not um, necessary. He's, I think he is able to avoid it. Most of the time is a really prominent man in Hollywood in a bubble and getting to just sort of like prick at that. That was like, I felt like a boss after that, that interview. And I feel like even around the newsroom, some people who were like, there. and I was like, that's right. I'm like starting to do things here. <laughs> I love that. So, yeah. I have a question about that though. Mm-hmm. Like, I feel like whenever I call someone out, I end up feeling, and this isn't my job as a journalist like yours, so maybe you've built up this muscle, but then I almost end up feeling bad. Oh, yeah. Like, you know, <laughs> so how, did you feel bad at all? Like, oh, man, I hope I didn't hurt that guy's feelings, but, or not, or like, how do you, do you know what I'm talking about? Like, I think that, I did to, like, reconcile? I think this time, I, I think there's definitely been ch- times when I have, and especially like even writing for my college paper, I wrote theater and arts reviews and you're always being like this person could have had a less terrible Irish accent you're like oh there's making those those comments and and feeling bad about that but in this case I didn't because this is a guy who just got paid millions of dollars to rewrite the last Star Wars and is wrote the Bourne trilogy someone who has so much power and and who will be fine you know who's 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 that criticism is something that he might take on board and he might listen to the people around him more and and think that you have to prepare for these kinds of questions uh so with him I was like like he'll he'll be fine he'll be absolutely fine this is a person with enormous power um whereas if someone you know if a if I was like in my when I was editing interns at BuzzFeed if one of them said something that was accidentally problematic in some way I'm just like always think about like you're like you're new you didn't I had my like undergrad at Berkeley like like 
experience of like learning about the discourse and like just I mean I, I had an intern once who applied and wrote um a, a thing about like being a guy with like only girlfriends and it was like and I read through this sample that he sent me that was all like kind of just came off as him like hating women a little and it, and it just like wasn't and I and he asked me for feedback and I was like ah you really just like were too mean about women generally being too like shrieky this or that or the other uh and what I loved was that he he was like and I what I explained was like people who know you and know and he was he's like the loveliest boy who's ever lived um but people who read a thing like this might not know that you're a wonderful person in real life and he was like oh wow you're right I hadn't thought about it that way was able to make edits to correct for that and then I hired him for that reason because he could take on board criticism but there without like the judgment of like calling him out but he was just like a young guy and an intern who and that was his first job and yeah versus people who where the power differential especially between me and them is is vast I just like think it's fine to yell up like hello like shut the I think fuck up of, yeah exactly <laughs> I think there's even like this aspect of just owning it you know I think that I'm always like I'm gonna say this thing and I mean it but I don't know. Like, do I mean I it? Hope, <laughs> I hope I mean it. <laughs> yeah. I think it's it's important to trust your gut with those things, but to, but to be like, to be fair in them and to be, yeah. to be, to be more like kind, even if they don't deserve it. Um, and even with the, the piece that ended up getting me, my book agent was making fun of some dudes, but they were literally the most powerful men in Britain. And for that reason, I didn't feel bad about making fun of their, you know, their way of being in the world. So uh, it's always depends on the context. Lovely. Thank you so much, Kathleen. I hope that put you to ease a bit. (laughs) It's okay, Kathleen. You're going to go on Twitter later and be like, this bitch said the most fucked up things. I'll be like, no. No, I love it. Hannah, it was so great getting to chat with you. The book is fantastic. All of our listeners should pick it up. So good. It was so nice to meet you and to hear more about your process. Awesome. Thanks for being boss ladies and for talking to me. (laughs) Hey, bosses. I want to tell you about the CEO Day Kit. The CEO Day Kit is 12 months of focused planning for your business in just one day. So Emily and I have packaged up the exact tools that we've been consistently using for years that have helped us grow from baby bosses to the CEOs of our own businesses. Gain clarity, find focus, get momentum, prioritize your time, make better decisions, and become more self-reliant with the CEO Day Kit. Go to courses.beingboss.club to learn more and see if it's a fit for you and your business. Thank you for listening to Being Boss. If you're looking for more help in being boss of your work and life, come check out our website where you can find episode show notes, browse our archives, and access free resources like worksheets, trainings, quizzes, and more. It's all at www.beingboss.club. Do the work. Be boss. Be boss.